Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. I'm recording this on Friday, April 8th, and a couple of announcements I've got for what's coming up next week. I'm going to have Pete Quinones on the program on Monday to talk about strategic versus principled voting. And I'm sure we'll get into not only voting, but you know some of the positions libertarians should support strategically versus the ones that we would support perhaps in a ideal world as we see it. So that should be a very interesting discussion. And I also have Jim Ostrowski, who has a new book out about the public school system. And both of those episodes relate to some issues that have been in the news. If you can manage to scroll past all of the Ukraine news that dominates every news website above the fold, at least. And if you can remember as far back as the Oscars and remember something about the Oscars besides Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, then there was some attention paid to a bill recently passed in Florida that they're calling the Don't Say Gay Bill. Now, of course, the bill doesn't mention the word gay or refer to homosexuality or heterosexuality, but merely seeks to prohibit teachers from discussing sexual matters with children between the ages of kindergarten and second grade. Now, you can imagine why this bill would be supported by conservatives who at one time objected to any sex education in school whatsoever. I'm a little surprised that it has so much attention from liberals seeing that it only applies to children of such a young age. I'm not exactly sure what the principle that they're arguing here is, but apparently some teachers have even resigned. I know some libertarians have somewhat painted this as a free speech issue, those who oppose the law. I don't see it that way at all. To be honest with you, I wouldn't really give this that much attention if it wasn't getting attention in libertarian circles. Because I imagine that whatever anybody says about it, that the state of Florida is going to be able to enforce this law unless somebody gets it before the Supreme Court, which 
I'm not sure what would happen there. You, you can roll the dice with the Supreme Court. Sometimes they do something that we like, and most often they don't. But the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because it touches on a subject that I've talked about before, and that's the school system in general. And notice I don't necessarily put the word public in front of it. I am a John Taylor Gatto fan, and I was persuaded by his arguments that the general paradigm of sending children to a building where they're segregated by age and uh, having them do 45-minute sessions of math and then reading and then science and then history or social studies, as they call them now, socialist studies, as I call them, that that is not the best way to educate children. Now, I know that's a minority view, and I don't expect to see schools go away anytime soon, but I don't see as big a difference between the public and private school systems and what they teach as a lot of other people. I think that academia is, in general, hostile towards the libertarian viewpoint, towards individual liberty in general, and especially towards private property and free enterprise, what we generally call capitalism, even though that term was coined by French socialists and made popular by Karl Marx in both cases as a pejorative. But I'm going to use the word capitalism only because I don't want to use several words where I could use one. So for all the people who are about to correct me in the comments, then I'd say save your breath. But go ahead and write whatever you like. Anywho, my problem with the school system generally, and it could be true that this is more prevalent in the public school system, I went to all Catholic schools, right from kindergarten, believe it or not, through college. I started kindergarten in the fall of 1970 and graduated from high school in 1983. So believe it or not, for all those years, I had to wear a tie to school. Those were the rules back then. And I can say with complete certainty that, no, we never talked about any of these things with the nuns in Mother of Divine Grace Catholic School. And as far as high school went, I went to an all-boys Catholic school called St. Joseph's Collegiate Institute in Kenmore, New York, which is right on the border of Buffalo, New York. And the first introduction to anything sexual was a health class taught by the guy who also taught gym there. And he gave us a rather rough version of the facts of life and some of the wonderful things that you might encounter with not being careful in your exploits in the amorous arts. What I can say is that my school experience from kindergarten all the way through graduating from college and getting into getting my master's degree did not instill any kind of admiration of capitalism in me. And while I can't point to anything specific in my grammar school education that would dispose me against capitalism, I can certainly point to certain aspects of both my high school and college education, which did so because I remember distinctly that once I got out on my own and had my own apartment and had a job and had to pay my own bills, I found it startling how different the real world was from what I had been taught it was in school. And I could say that while I probably emerged from 
college as a what might be called a moderate liberal who just assumed growing up in Western New York that the Democrats were better than the Republicans, although I never really felt strongly about that, that very soon after I got out on my own, those ideas started to dissipate rather quickly. I can't say that I was never a conservative. I just wasn't brought up that way. Once I was somewhat aware of where the political parties fell on certain issues, I always assumed that my father was a Republican and my mother was a Democrat. I found out later in life that my father actually was a lifelong Democrat. He just never seemed to vote for any. And when I asked him about this, he said when they first bought the house in Chictawaga, New York, where I grew up, that everybody else was a Democrat and mainly most people join political parties based on how the people around them belong. So that's how he made that decision. But in any case, I was always the type who liked to kind of research things on my own. I've always liked to read primary sources. So during the 1990s, I cultivated an interest in ancient religions and read quite a bit on the ancient mystery religions and the origins of Christianity and all these kinds of things, merely out of academic interest. And I also picked up a book of the letters of the writings of Thomas Jefferson. I think it's just called Writings, and it's put out by the Library of Congress. And I just started reading them, thinking to myself, I'd like to see what this person I've learned about from grade school and high school textbooks really had to say himself. And as I went through those in a rather random fashion, it began to dawn on me that the way he looked at the world and the American Republic was quite a bit different from what I had been taught that even he believed. And that and my real-world experience with learning about business and some of my first companies that I worked for generally started leading me towards this libertarian philosophy. And I'm not sure when I got there, but I know I was there at least by just after the election of George W. Bush, because it was at that time that a coworker had heard me expressing some opinions, usually when asked, a lot of people were talking about the election and who really won it and what it would mean if one versus the other got to be the president. And based on statements that I had made when others were talking about this, this coworker approached me and said, what are your political beliefs? And I held forth with my various beliefs, which were always first and foremost anti-war. That's the one position I had that I felt strongly about as far back as I can remember. And I think that my answer to him was somewhere along the lines of, I'm stringently anti-war, and I think if Bush gets in there, he's going to start a new war in the Middle East. How's that for a prediction? But I also believe that the government shouldn't be at all involved in the business world that they don't do really any good there and we're taxed way too much. This is just based on looking at my own paycheck and that generally for-profit businesses do a lot more good than does the government. Now, I don't know if I was remembering Adam Smith's invisible hand from having had to read that somewhere during my schooling or if I just stumbled upon that concept on my own. 
But those were my general beliefs. And this coworker gleefully <laughs> told me, oh, you're a libertarian, and immediately reached into his desk and pulled out some magazines. Back then, we read paper magazines, believe it or not. This was the Stone Age. And from then on, I became interested in this libertarian philosophy. Believe it or not, I'd never even heard the word. Now, I was somebody with a master's degree and read the newspaper, and I used to read Newsweek. We, we had been required by one of our teachers at St. Joe's to subscribe to either Time or Newsweek for a class on current events or something like that. And I had done so and just never canceled it because I enjoyed reading it. So for better or worse, I was reading Newsweek and generally thought I was pretty well informed. Never heard the word libertarian before that guy said it. Or if I had, it just went in one ear and right out the other. So I was pretty old for somebody to have never heard the word. But once I had, I, of course, became interested in it. And because of this new invention they had, relatively new, called the Internet, I, I had been on the Internet since the mid-1990s, but wasn't as widely used as it is today at that time. I began researching this libertarian idea, found out that we had a political party, went on their website and said, oh, I actually agree with these people. And since, of course, by that time I had missed the Harry Brown candidacy, the first presidential nominee that I had a chance to support was Michael Bodnarik. And holy cow, was this guy ever my guy. I was happy to vote for him for president. Not so much Bob Barr when the party then went on a three-election cycle of nominating Republican has-beens, Gary Johnson being a nice guy, but anybody could tell just by listening to him talk that he was not deeply steeped in libertarian principles, although I believe he had libertarian instincts. And let's not even mention lifelong libertarian Bill Weld, who is now reborn, I guess, as a Republican. But in any case, after that long digression, I guess that my whole point is that these ideas which were the founding principles of the United States. That really, the United States was founded as a libertarian nation. They didn't call it that back then. When you, for instance, read Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural, he clearly states that it's the purpose of government to enforce the non-aggression principle. I talked about that before. He clearly states in his second inaugural that it's the government's job to protect property rights, even if it results in inequality. So these were the ideas, all coming from John Locke, and I know I've talked about that before as well. And I never heard about them. I was exposed to a course that compared Locke to Rousseau in college. And I know I also had at least one high school book who mentioned John Locke and one of those paragraph summaries where you're getting hundreds of years of history within a few pages. But I was never taught that limited government was the general principle that the United States were founded upon. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. 
Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. Like most people, I was taught and believed that taxation without representation was the primary, almost sole reason for the colonies to secede from the British Empire. And of course, they used to say that, but I was never taught that they didn't want representation either. And I believe that focusing on this one phrase is intentionally deceptive. I can find no other reason for it. Because when you read the primary documents, like the summary view of the rights of British America and some of the other writings of Jefferson, Adams, etc., you cannot but conclude that there was a lot more to it than that, that this was about the role of government in people's lives, and that, if anything, taxation without representation was just sort of a legal excuse they could use to object to rule by the British Empire, but that really, as Jefferson argued in the summary view, that unless Great Britain was going to accept an arrangement where the king was the executive over the colonies, but that they had the legislative power themselves, they weren't going to stick around. Now, whether they were right or wrong at the time, as far as their view of the so-called English Constitution, which wasn't written down, is neither here nor there. That's what they believed. That's why they seceded. And a highly educated person like myself, with an interest in history, although I was an English major, had no idea about this after being a successful graduate student. So these are the kinds of things I was thinking about when I decided to homeschool my own daughter, that I just hadn't been taught the way the real world works, that especially when it came to history, I was deliberately deceived about a lot of things, and they all seemed to have one common characteristic. They all tended to support an anti-capitalist view of the world. That was the one thing that everything I had been taught and everything that had been omitted from my education had in common. And I know I've talked about the Plymouth and Jamestown colonies before. And again, this was another thing where the primary sources were a revelation to me. The way I stumbled on the whole pilgrims were originally commies, and that's why they starved, and only became prosperous once they allowed everybody to own a few acres of their own land 
Well, that was from reading William Bradford's diary. Why did I do that? Okay, here's an interesting story. During my undergraduate years as an English major, we were supposed to take a trip to Walden Pond and Concord, Massachusetts, and this was all going to be organized by a professor who was teaching us, Henry David Thoreau, and also Ralph Waldo Emerson. And for whatever reason, this trip fell apart. I think it was supposed to happen in the summer after my junior year. And it fell apart, and we never went on that trip. This would have been, I believe, in the summer of 1986. That's when the trip should have happened. We were probably talking about it since the previous fall of 1985. And after I got married in 1998, and we went on a honeymoon in Europe, on our first anniversary, we decided to take a more modest trip. And I thought, let's take that trip that I was going to take in college. And we drove up to and swam in Walden Pond and went and looked at the replica of Thoreau's little shack that he lived in. And then we saw the ruins of the actual site of his his real shack. And we went to Ralph Waldo Emerson's house. I was struck at that time that the guide for Ralph Waldo Emerson's house made a point several times that Emerson was never what we would consider rich that he was middle class. Well, you should have seen the house. I think most people would consider his living conditions rich by today's standards, which struck me as very interesting. And she also mentioned that he could only afford one or two servants, which again struck me because nobody I knew in my middle class life had any servants. So again, it planted a seed in my mind that perhaps the 19th century had relatively better economic opportunities. Whether that's true or not, as far as Emerson and his servants goes, that seed was planted by that little tour. And we had quite a few adventures on that trip. We spent one evening with my cousin and his wife in Plymouth and had a grand old time there watching the local band and drinking a lot of beer. And we spent one day at Plymouth Plantation They have a replica of the Plymouth Colony there, and all the people inside are actors who pretend that they're the colonists, and you can go through there and tour the place. And this was something I found very interesting. And of course, they were singing the song that I heard in college and grade school that pilgrims generally starved and only made it because of the help of the Indians, as they called them. The savages, that's what they called them. So having done that day trip tour of the Plymouth Colony, I got a copy of William Bradford's diary and started reading that. And what do you know? William Bradford says, yes, the Indians were helpful to us. Squanto did teach us that trick to put the dead fish under every corn stalk and that would help it grow. That's not the reason we were starving. It wasn't the fish trick that we needed. The reason we starved was our communist system, where everybody worked a common piece of land and all of the proceeds went into a common storehouse to be doled out, each according to his needs, so to speak. And the problem with that system is what we would today call socialism's incentive problem. 
nobody has any incentive to work as hard as they can because no matter how hard they work, they're going to get the same amount of food doled out to them from the common store. So especially the men of parts, as Bradford described them, the most able-bodied men would want to slack off because why should I kill myself when you know I'm still going to get the same as the old guy who can barely harvest any corn at all. So Bradford says that this problem was solved when he ditched the communist system and gave everybody three acres of land and said, go ahead, you will pay this much into the common store per year, but the rest you can keep yourself. And then everybody went out to work. All the people who used to pretend they were too sick, all the mothers with their children, they went all to work in the fields and production increased exponentially. So that was another revelation. How come I hadn't heard this in school? I had spent weeks in November, every year of my grammar school, cutting out crepe paper headdresses and pilgrim hats and pilgrim belt buckles. And never once had I heard that this was the reason the pilgrims starved and that a free enterprise system with a lot of qualifications is what saved them, private property. So that was a revelation. And it was only many years after that that I found out, guess what? That's what happened in Jamestown as well. That no, it wasn't mosquitoes or just general ineptitude that caused the Jamestown settlers to starve, that they also had this communist system, the exact same one, and it was solved the exact same way by Sir Thomas Dale giving everybody three acres of land. Same story. Now, we have this cartoonish, literally, since the 1995 Disney film, view of the Jamestown colony and Captain John Smith, who, by the way, never had any romance with Pocahontas, who was only 12 or 13 when he knew her. She did marry another Jamestown colonist and and eventually went to England. And like Squanto, she also gave the colonists aid and probably saved John Smith from getting his brains beat out when he was captured by her father's uh, tribe. But again, Pocahontas' assistance is not what turned things around in Virginia, in the Jamestown colony. What turned it around was private property, was abandoning the communist system and adopting somewhat private property and free enterprise system instead. So how do I attain a master's degree and never hear about this stuff in school? And it's not like we didn't spend time on the Jamestown and Plymouth colonies. We spent ample time on them. So it seems like you would have to intentionally ignore what should be the biggest lesson coming out of those historical examples. That communism is lethal and private property is essential to survival. So those are just two examples. I generally emerged from my schooling with the idea that it was the government that ended child labor, that child labor began during the Industrial Revolution and was ended by government regulation. Well, obviously that's not true. The reality is the children were working before the Industrial Revolution on the farm and doing much more backbreaking labor than they assigned them in the factories during the early Industrial Revolution. And as far as the government ending child labor, well, yeah, they passed regulations against it when so few children were working that families could afford to have their children stay home or go to school. And of course, for those children 
who couldn't, well, nobody really cares about that. We passed a law that they're not allowed to work. We don't really care what happened to them afterwards. Someone did a study of the same kinds of laws in Bangladesh, and it turns out that after they passed the child labor laws, some of the children died from famine. Some became prostitutes. Some of them, we have no idea what happened to them. So, of course, the people that promote these kinds of things don't really care about the results. They just care about signaling their virtue. But right down the line, antitrust laws, nobody cared about the results of those, which were higher prices. So my problem with the school system, and I was never in a public school for a day in my life, is that it generally promotes an anti-capitalist mindset. And that's why I wanted my daughter to be homeschooled so she would not be brainwashed that way. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that there was a big uproar before this don't say gay thing about critical race theory being taught in the public schools. And again, critical race theory has something to do with race, obviously, but it's really just a subset of critical theory. And what is critical theory? It's a new strategy to promote Marxism by Marxists in the 1930s who realized that there wasn't going to be a proletariat revolution. And they had all sorts of rationalizations for why this proletariat revolution didn't happen. But the obvious reason was because the working class was much better off after the Industrial Revolution and under capitalism than they had been during their agricultural lives before that. Another thing that I never learned in school. Why did everybody leave their farms and come to the factories? I've heard conspiracy theories, and I'm using that term even though I don't generally like it because of its misuse, but people conspire all the time, and there's a theory that government and big business conspired together to kind of drive people off their farms. And whether this happened in limited circumstances or not is a subject for another day. But in general, people left their farms and went to the factories because higher living standards were available. The farm was a nice sunshiny place when the harvest was good. But after a bad year where you lost your whole crop, not such a great place to be or to try to survive, as opposed to a steady paycheck from an industrial employer where you also had the amenities of the city that you didn't have on the farm. Now, while some of these conditions may seem squalid to us today, I think if any of us went back and lived on, let's say, an early 18th century farm, we wouldn't find it the utopia that it's painted as uh, by those who are generally against the Industrial Revolution. So these are just a few thoughts ahead of my episodes next week with Pete Quinonez and Jim Ostrowski, where we're going to get into some more contemporary issues that my general problem with schooling is it is completely, no matter whether it's public or private schooling, it's a product of academia and academia is anti-capitalist and probably always has been even before the early progressive era. So let's leave it there. For everyone who's new, who just joined or stumbled onto the podcast, maybe because one of the articles I've written, then please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you haven't received a free copy of my ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, then you can go to itsthefedstupid.com, download a free copy of the ebook. 
If you have the means and you want to help support the podcast and my efforts here, you can purchase a paperback copy on Amazon, and the links are all there at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard during the intro, outro, or some of the breaks, you can hear more at tommullinsings.com. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you on Monday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.